Welcome to the Weekly Insight Podcast, where we break down the noise of the week and help you understand the psychology of the markets with your host, Andrew Dore at Insight Wealth Group. Good morning. Welcome to the latest edition of the Weekly Insight. As usual, I'm your host, Andrew Dore. I thank you again for joining us. We hope this can be a good 15-minute little take on what's going on in the world. We're also spending some time this week talking about some financial planning topics, frankly, just because we're getting a little grumpy when it comes to some of these things. And so I wanted to pass along some thoughts on this. We'll see if you like them or if you don't. Before we get into that, as always, I want to do what we do every week, which is just remind you on behalf of our compliance department that what you are about to hear today should not be construed as individual investment advice. What you're hearing today are our opinions about what's going on in the world, my opinions about what's going on in the world, and you really should talk to your personal financial advisor. If that's me, come and hit me up. If it's not, we'd encourage you to talk to whoever it is that you trust to work on these issues to make sure that you're taking this information and using it in the best way for you. Let's move on from that. And today, we're going to talk about Social Security. We're going to talk about retirement. Because I was reading an article last week, and I gotta be honest with you, it really ticked me off. If you if you followed our commentary at all, either via this podcast or via our weekly Insight Memo, you know that Insight Wealth Group takes a very macro view of the world. Admittedly, the day-to-day movements of the stock market are very important. We're going to end this podcast by talking a little bit about what might be driving those movements this week. But there are bigger things that need to be understood on a daily basis. We take the view that understanding what moves people and psychology, what moves governments, and what moves the broader economy is going to lead to movements of the markets. Well, this game has some science and it has some art to it, but that's why we spend so much time on this podcast talking about investor psychology, talking about government policy, talking about foreign policy, talking about macroeconomic themes. All of these issues matter. We would argue that they matter much, 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 much more than the latest stock tip. Because, yeah, you may get that really good one from Jim Cramer on CNBC, and you may light up the world with it once, but are you going to be right on it over and over and over again? Because if you can't understand the why of how things works, it's very important to be able to deliver consistent returns in a portfolio. So we're going to talk about the why a little bit today about the retirement game. Last week, I sat here and I was pretty grumpy about the financial media intelligentsia, if you will. I called them the gurus. And, you know, maybe I'm getting crotchety as I get older, but I'm back to complain a little bit more this week. This time, though, you know, it's an easy target. It's our government officials. It's our elected officials. But the point really is not just to whine. It's also to give you some valuable information for long-term financial planning. So let's dive into it. So retirement saving. The truth of the matter is that Americans are not set up for good retirement savings. The average American, depending on the stat you look at, has somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $50,000 saved for retirement. Think about that. That includes the people that are entering retirement. On average, have somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $50,000 saved. And they need to live off of that for 10, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. That is not a sound plan. But before we get into that, let's think a little bit broader. Let's go macro. Let's talk about the view of retirement in this country and how it has changed over time. Because frankly, 100 years ago, nobody retired. You know, I'm a baseball fan, and there's something called the pup list, physically unable to perform. That was pretty much the only reason you left the workplace. 
You were either going on the pup list or you died. And that's why when Social Security was created in 1935, it was not sold as a retirement plan. It was sold as old age insurance. But my, how demographics have changed since then. Let's remember that when Social Security went into effect, the benefit age was 65. That meant that if you were born in 1870, you would have been eligible for Social Security benefits in the first year of the program. What was the average life expectancy of someone born in 1870? I went and looked at this this weekend. I found an old study from the Millbank, Millbank excuse me, Memorial Fund quarterly newsletter. And this is from like 1965, I believe. And the study showed that in 1935, 36.96% of the population that was born in 1870 was still alive by 1935. That lines up with what we also know, which is that the average life expectancy of someone born in 1870 was 39.41 years. Think about that. They told you, hey, if you make it to 65, we're going to have this program for you. But they knew in the back of their head that there were going to be a lot more workers then there were going to be retirees. A lot more people in the workforce paying money into the Social Security system than there would be those that lived to see a penny. That math does not work today. Life expectancy has exploded in the U.S. Why? Because we're a great country. We've done a really good job. We've had advances in healthcare and quality life that have impacted everyday Americans. But while Americans are living significantly longer, our leaders do not have the courage to be honest with the American people. I remember back in, oh man, I don't remember the year, but it was the mid-2000s, and Chris Christie was running for governor of New Jersey, and the the unions hated him. I'm not pro-union or anti-union. I'm not here to make a commentary on that, but the unions really didn't like him because what he was saying was that the pension system for the unions was broken. And at the time he was elected, he immediately went up in front of the firefighters union and he got booed relentlessly at this speech. And he got up and he said, you know, I get it. I understand why you hate me. I'm talking about reducing your retirement benefits. But who you should really be mad at are the people who lied to you for the last 40 years. And that's what's happening today. We've been so bold in this country. While life expectancy has gone from 39.41 years at the beginning of this to, depending on what year you're looking at, 75 or 80 years old, we've been so bold to raise what is now being called the retirement program, no longer being called old age insurance, from age 65 to 67. We got a, a chart on this that shows life expectancy over benefit age. You can look at it at the in the latest edition of the Weekly Insight, but it's stunning. We just never did anything. And, and we haven't done anything for a long time because life expectancy crossed the benefit age back when like my parents were born, back in 1945. This thing has been broken for a long time, or someone who was born in 1945, excuse me. Uh, the, the life expectancy across the benefit aid. So we all know the result. The Social Security program is failing financially. Everybody knows this. And, you know, Andrew, why have you spent the last five minutes talking about something we already know? Why? Because by 2034, we're going to have burned up all of the excess reserves of the Social Security system. Without changes, benefits are going to shrink. Current calculations show that by 1934, they're going to start reducing benefits to all participants, including those who are already relying upon them for their, for their retirement, by 22%. But that's not the only problem. Because at the same time that this is happening, Americans' expectations about retirement are changing. Remember, nobody retired back in 1935. 
You either were just unable to work or you died. Now, well, today, a recent study by Natixis shows that the average American hopes to stop working by age 62. There's a substantial difference, though, amongst the generations. I'll come back to 62 because I think it's an important number. There's a substantial difference amongst generations. The average baby boomer indicated that they intended to work until age 68. Gen Xers, 60. Gen Y, man, these guys are optimistic. They intend to stop working at age 59. Why is 62 important as an average? It just happens to be the earliest point at which you can get Social Security benefits. So in the end, you know, it's all a math problem. Everything is in the end. A a member of the Gen Y generation, born in 1990, has a life expectancy of roughly 75 years, 74.89. That means if they started working at age 20, their plan is that they're going to work for 39 years to age 59, and then they're going to be retired for 26 years. You can't do it. You can't do it without substantive savings in excess of Social Security which, by the way, for them, is going to have been reduced by at least 22%. You're going to have to do it on your own. Which brings me to my gripe today and the article I read this week that just, man, it made my blood boil. Because this last week, the U.S. House passed some legislation uh, that will change retirement programs like 401ks, IRAs, et cetera, et cetera. And on its face, it sounds like great things, right? It's it's get government out of it a little bit, let, let employees do more to save, you know, if you're in the catch-up contribution years, you're going to be able to contribute more. You're going to be able to hold on to your retirement accounts longer. Your RMDs won't start until age 75. There's a lot of really, I think, attractive things in the program. But what I noticed about it, what I noticed about it was what they're doing to, you know, to change the message here. Because back in 1978, when Section 401k of the Internal Revenue Code was created, it was really an accident. Congress wasn't intending to create what they created, but employers saw an opportunity. They saw an opportunity and started offering these tax-deferred savings accounts to employees. The first company to do so, Hughes Aircraft. And once companies realized the possibilities of this, Congress then formalized the rule and created what it was, which at the time was the third leg of the retirement stool. Leg one, Social Security. Leg two, pensions. And now they'd added 401k plans. Well, the problem is there's only one good leg left. The pension leg is basically gone. In 1970, 45% of U.S. workers had a pension. Today, that number is only 16%. And nearly all of those workers are government employees. So that leaves us with a two-legged stool. The only problem is we just spent five minutes talking about how the leg underneath Social Security is collapsing. So in this new legislation, one of the things that the leaders in Washington, and I use the word leaders lightly, decided to do was put the onus of the 401k plan not on the employee, but on the employer. So now employers are going to have to offer 401k plans on day one with their very first employee, on an employee's very first day. There's many things that they're going to do that are really going to push the onus of this back to the employer. Now listen, Employers have responsibilities and they need need to do their job. And we are honored at Insight Wealth Group to offer a great 401k plan to our employees. I think it's an incredibly important thing to do. But what the House is doing is they're abdicating their own responsibility for Social Security and they're pushing this responsibility back off onto employers. So don't get us wrong. We will work with our clients who are employers, our clients who are employees. We're going to take advantage of this. But the problem is nobody in Washington wants to tackle the difficult issue. And the issue that, frankly, as Chris Christie said, has been a lie to the American worker 
for the last 40 or 50 years. That is that Social Security is going to break down on them and it is not going to provide the support that it has provided for generations before. What the politicians know, the average age of the United States Senate, I looked this up, 64.3 years old. They're going to be dead and gone before this bill comes due and nobody's going to hold them accountable. And so shame on them. I'm going to get off my, uh, my stump here. I won't rant anymore. I'll try to make next week's really positive and uplifting. But when I saw that bill this week, it just really drove me crazy. Let's move on to the week ahead because we do have a big week ahead. It's a short week in the markets. I'm sure most of you know this, but Easter is next weekend and Good Friday remains one of the market holidays. And so the markets are closed on Friday. We only have four days of trading this week, but there's a lot going to happen packed into those four days. The first one, probably the biggest one, honestly, is that we're going to get the CPI and PPI data for March. So that's the inflation data. I know I've beaten the inflation story to death in this podcast. I will not do it again. Just know this. Right now, the experts are saying that CPI is going to grow by 0.5% from February to March and that PPI is expected to rise 1.1%. So what does that mean? Anything above those expectations, the market's going to probably react poorly. Anything below? Maybe optimistically, but again, this is the whole game about what's the Fed going to do. If inflation continues to ramp up and ramp up aggressively, the more likely that the Fed in their next meeting in May raises rates by 50 basis points instead of 25. I will just remind you of the thing we keep saying, which is the Fed is important, interest rate policy is important, but so are the natural breaks on inflation. Last week, we gave you the CAS freight index data and what it might mean for inflation. Just one more data set. I'll, I'll throw this up on the website in the memo as well, but there's a group called uh, Freight Waves that does uh, something called the Outbound Tender Volume Index. Essentially, what they're saying is the volume of goods being shipped by freight throughout the United States. And if you look, since March 8th, that number has collapsed. It's down nearly 15%. And that coincides really, really well with what we know about wholesale sales versus wholesale inventories. Inventory growth is accumulating. We're starting to dig ourselves out of this hole. And so it isn't going to be fast. It isn't going to happen overnight, but it is getting better. We're seeing it with wholesale used car prices. We're seeing it now with freight. We're seeing it with durable goods orders. This thing will start to peel back a little bit. We can't promise it's going to happen quickly. We will feel more pain in the meantime, but just know we are starting to see substantive changes in the underlying issues around inflation. The second thing for this week, earnings. This is the week that earnings season really kicks off. We get the big banks. We're going to see J.P. Morgan Chase, BlackRock, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, you name it. They're all reporting their Q1 earnings this week. They're not expected to be stellar. Why? The expectation right now is that banks are going to be expected to price in more quote-unquote loan losses for bad debt. One of the things we know is that when banks post more loan losses, they struggle to excel at earnings. So I included a chart from FactSet, but it shows a perfect diagram. When loan losses go up, earnings go down. When loan losses go down, earnings go up. But you know the expectations for rising loan losses, they're not extraordinary. Actually, I think that we're just tipping above zero this month. So that's a good thing. It's actually going to be a little bit below $5 billion in loan losses for the quarter. And the other thing is the rest of earning expectations have actually remained pretty solid. We know that over time, earnings traditionally beat expectations. 
In fact, the market has only underperformed expectations one time in the last four years, and that was Q1 of 2020. Anybody remember what happened in Q1 of 2020? It was a little messy back then. And so we don't see something like that happening here. There was some really good data by facts that I believe typically the market outperforms expectations on average, like four and a half percent. So if that's the case, we're probably looking at closer to like nine to 10% earnings growth this quarter. We'll see. Not committed to that yet, but we are still on pace for 9% earnings growth for the year, which would be tremendous. Those two things are going to weigh heavily in the market this week. As I said at the front end of this this, uh, podcast, the day-to-day stuff is important, but the bigger macro issues are the issues that are going to drive market success long-term. So if we get a bad read on inflation or we get a couple bad bank reports, that's not going to be the end of the world. We need to focus more on the bigger picture issues that are going to drive markets, uh, not only throughout the rest of this quarter, but this year and next year and the year before, a year after that. So with that, we'll leave you there for the week. I really appreciate you spending this time with us. If you have any questions, give me a call. Give our team a call at 515-273-1333, or you can always visit us on the web at www.insightwealthgroup.com. Have yourself a great week. Thank you. Securities offered through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, NFA. Investment advisory services offered through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment firm.